It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 48, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Boggy Creek Farm got its start in 1991 selling produce at a farm stand in Austin, Texas, and to the original Whole Foods Market, which was also there in Austin. Now with two farms, one in Gauss, a little over an hour outside of Austin, and one just two and a half miles from the state capital in the heart of Austin, my guest, Carol Ann Sale, and her husband and farming partner, Larry Butler, sell their fresh produce and value-added products at the farm stand on their farm in Austin. I first heard about Boggy Creek Farm when I read about their smoke-dried tomatoes in a Growing for Market article years ago, and my mouth has been watering for them ever since. Carol Ann shares the story of Boggy Creek Farm's start, how she and Larry managed the challenges and reaped the rewards of having two farms over an hour apart, pricing strategies, and the nitty-gritty of growing year-round in Texas. And we'll get right to it after a quick word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost. Founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com Carol Ann Sale, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I'm so tickled. This is our first real episode from down south um i know you were you and i were talking before the show and you said that's that's why you're called carol ann because you're from down there so you've got to have two names that's correct most people are born with two names but we take the time to pronounce both of them down here so um how's the weather in austin today well it's beautiful it's um full sun a little bit of stray clouds and it's about 45 degrees or so and everything is just green as a gourd down here the crops are doing great and it's like kind of like a second spring uh we've had we've had cold weather but um a little sleet and a little bit up in the little 30s but uh i think y'all have gotten most of it up there in west texas and panhandle been really deluge of snow so um we're pretty content right now but you never know what will happen next now would that be a pretty normal winter season for you guys well we can we can get real cold we've been the nine degrees we've had uh snowstorms you know like an inch or so and uh um we get hail we get tornadoes we get everything in the world in the winter um and so but uh, Christmas Day, for instance, is 75 degrees, and that was kind of spooky, and the retailers lost a lot of money because nobody was in the mood. So I uh, imagine sweater sales are down and all, all that, and people are appearing in shorts and you know, slides and all that kind of stuff. So, But, yeah, winter, you know, nothing's really typical here in Texas. It's uh, We're at the bottom of that big blue U that comes out of Canada and hits y'all and then comes on down. And so we get punishing winds, punishing freezes and all that stuff in the winter. Um, it's just, uh, it's a violent place to, to farm. The weather is crazy and it's, it's, um, it's, you just never can expect, you know, anything to be normal. It's, it's going to be like 75 degrees on Christmas day or so. And then uh, 30 degrees at night and then 30 degrees every night. And now we're kind of inching back up a little bit. But it's just it's just what it is, and we just kind of roll over and take it and try to get back on our feet. Um, it's it's weather. 
I thought it would be great if you could give us kind of the lay of the land with with Boggy Creek Farm. And I mean, I've done a little bit of an intro before we started the show here, but I think it'd be great to get it in your words and, and to kind of round that out here. Okay. Well, the first thing is that Boggy Creek Farm is, is singular in spelling. And a lot of people like to put an S on the end and they only have one farm, but um, oddly we're contrary and we have two farms. One is uh, a rural farm out in the Boonies, about an hour and a half northeast of Boston. And that farm we started in 19, well, we bought it in 1981 and started farming it uh, for commercial reasons uh, because we couldn't make any money down here. We, Texas was in a real bad uh, re- recession or depression back in the 80s. And so um, we couldn't figure out how we would uh, be able to sell to grocery stores and get cents for a squash. So we didn't do anything except learn how to grow our own food. And that was a pivotal um, learning deal. So that helped prepare us to be commercial farmers. And we went commercial on that land in 91, certified it organic and all that, and started uh, selling to Whole Foods, very first original store. And then also uh, at the same time, we started just selling off a card table in front of a liquor store near our house in Austin. So we were living in Austin and farming that land 150 miles, uh, an hour and a half, 80 miles, I should say, 80 miles away and an hour and a half drive. And then that lasted about one year, and we found this farm land in Austin. And it was five acres of rich bottomland soil that was in located in East Austin, about uh, two and a half miles from the state capitol building. And we thought, oh, my, you know, it's got an old house on it. We love old houses. And so we thought, well, we'll just kind of leave the country farm as a a place to get away, and we will turn this into a farm again. The land land was farmed first in 1839, so it it had farming in its bones already. It's just we had to kind of uh, get the weeds down and get the junk cars off of it and all the trash that people had thrown over for years. And... uh, and so anyway, we turned this farm into and called it Boggy Creek Farm because Boggy Creek was right across the road from the farm. And typically in Texas, you name your farm after the water source. But right, because the water source is pretty darn important in Texas. Water is everything. It's totally everything. Um, so, of course, we don't get our water from Boggy Creek because in the 80s, during the downturn, they had what was called an earmark, you know now. And uh, money was laid laid aside by the the uh, our representative in Washington D.C. to pave Boggy Creek so that it wouldn't flood. And so that to any water staying in East Austin, it all just shoots down uh, further and joins Colorado River. And so that was kind of disappointment, but that's the way it is. And we were lucky to be able to reactivate the shallow well that had been there for 100 years or so. And so we irrigate out of a shallow well on this five acres. And basically, it, it is five acres, and the other farm is about 47 acres. But we have up there, we have carved out of that 47 acres about five acres that we cover crop and we, and we grow crops on. And the rest of it's woods, and like the woods, there's a lot of variety of trees up there and so forth. And Larry does woodworking when, you know, if you have a, a horrible time like 2011 when we had the worst drought and heat wave in American history, um, this was before the heat wave hit in 2012 up north, um, right. which got a lot of press. <laughs> but down here, it was just kind of a, 
ho-hum, ditto <laughs> event because we'd had the worst one ever. Um, we had six inches in that year. Normal is so-called normal is 30 inches a year. We had six inches and we had uh, 90 days over 100 degrees. And one day it was 130 in our field. So of course everything died on the farm. But that's uh, you know that was that was that. Yeah, the farm in the country is is uh, really a peaceful place. It's you know it's rural. It's surrounded by woods. It's sandy land. It's um, it, it eats up all the fertilizers. And you got sand for about two and a half to four feet, and then you run into um, clay, red clay. So we've had everything from so much rain that um, there would be would be like quicksand out there, and everything would die because it was suffocating. And uh, but uh, other than those moments, every once in a while, it's really good growing land, and uh, so we we bring in quite a lot of stuff from that farm to supplement our farm stand, which is on the Austin farm. And uh, it's it's kind of like an insurance policy to have two farms because if my beets don't make it, maybe Larry's beets will make it, and vice versa. Right. So that's the good thing about it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, challenges in having two farms. It's like having the two houses. You know, at the lake house, you left you left your favorite spoon, and you need it now in your city house and stuff like that. So there's that kind of you know stuff like you gotta have two of everything, and, and you'll they'll both wind up in the same farm. So, um, but otherwise, it's it's good insurance. And um, well, and you just said something really interesting. You said Larry's farm. Yeah, we kind of kind of proprietary that way. <laughs> well, what what the deal is that Larry grew up in that area. It's a little town called Gauze, G A U S E. It's named for uh, a colonel that um, landed there in the 1850s, and, and Larry and his family actually lived in the colonel boat house until the tornado. Uh, collapsed it, and uh, then they had to uh, take the chimneys and build another house. Uh, so uh, he grew up there, and his father and mother, they, they kind of start thought they'd be farmers, and they grew 40 acres of tomatoes and took them up to the tomato shed that was along the, the freight train line in, in town and uh, sold them to those deals that do little four, four little green tomatoes and a cellophane-wrapped piece of cardboard at the time the grocery stores in the fifties. And uh right. so that uh but one that one year they, they were they bought their transplants out of the valley, the Rio Grande Valley, and they all turned out to be Romas and there was no market for Romas. So they um just left the plants and didn't harvest any tomatoes at all and just bought some cows and turned them in and let them eat the tomatoes. And the next year they thought, well we'll do some watermelons. And then when the watermelons came on, the watermelons from the valley had already hit the stores. And so there was not even any economical way that they could even harvest 40 acres of watermelons. So, again, they bought more cows and turned them in. And then Mary's dad said, well, from <laughs> now on, we are ranchers, not farmers. So that's kind of the way it was. But so we grew up with cows and and coming through woods on a January freezing night and with sleep in the air and everything and trying to find a cow who didn't show up uh, at dinner time and, and he knew that she was pregnant. And so he would go out in the woods and find that cow and bring her and the calf home and stuff like that. And that, you know, just different things like punching a hole in the cow's stomach with a knife, let air out or gas out or something. It just, when we started farming, he says, no cows, <laughs> no more. So... Um, <laughs> So that's uh, our golf land is vegetables. So well, and because your farm in Austin is is very much an urban farm. Oh, it's very urban. You know, back in 1839, this uh, East East Austin uh, was the 
farming area. Uh, all around the city, the new city of Austin, they had they had uh, zoned these these areas. It's supposed to be for agriculture, feed the city, and so forth. And so we were our farm is right on the edge of these tracts of land. And the, the original pioneers from North Carolina, they bought uh, four tracts totaling 50 acres. And this is the this was the farmstead, but they were rich, so they bought more land. In fact, the pioneer husband, he came in 1832 and got Spanish land grants for about 400 acres to the northeast. So they had other land, too, and they had city lots and all kinds of exciting things. So they were speculators as well as farmers. And they were farmers because they, they grew cotton and corn and wheat and had pigs and all that and uh, just did everything that they had done in Carolina it's alluvial soil from the flooding of the Colorado through the eons. And, of course, there's no flooding anymore because of dams. So we have to enrich our soil with minerals and, 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 and compost and so forth. It's not 40 feet of topsoil. It's, if we're lucky, it's about two and a half feet soil. And then it starts getting into the, the clayish stuff. But it really is good stuff. And it's, it's, a, little, it's a little alkaline. And I wish it was more acid, but it's not, and it's okay. We deal with it. It's great for okra, great for a lot of things, actually. <laughs> Good tomatoes. And um, so through the years, we've developed this farm to be a market garden, and the other farm has been developed as a roughshod, um, relaxed place that um, puts out a lot of crops. Uh, but it's relaxed in the way that you don't have visitors constantly and phone calls constantly and tours and all this. We're just overrun with all this stuff here because of our location. If you know, it, it, it turns out good in many ways because we do get a lot of school children coming through here. So many that I have to have an official tour because I'm a farmer. I'm not really right. a tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> you actually and, have to have time to farm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and people are always wanting to get married here, and we don't we don't really do that. We we'll do a few fundraisers every year, but we we're really not in the wedding business. And uh, I think it'd just be horrific trying to deal with brides and brides' mothers and and plan an event that's a year in the in the, in the future because <laughs> you know they have to book them early. We're two miles from the intersection of East 7th Street, I-35, the most dangerous interstate in the country. And so we're two miles from that, two and a half miles from the governor's mansion and all in the state capital. So, yes, uh, you could jog there in about 30 minutes at the most to the capital if you wanted to, you know, harangue somebody. Uh, but um, it's... Uh, it's really, it's really got a lot of good things because you know you you can have a farm stand because you're in the city, and uh, we don't really deliver to restaurants or anything because we're in a city and the traffic's bad, traffic's horrible, and we can't we can't afford nor do we want to drive around in traffic all day long delivering stuff that's going to be wilting in a minute. And so uh, it's good that people can come out to the farm and they can walk the farm and they can look at everything and they can. You know, they they can just do their own self tours, and that's fabulous. It's uh, it's certainly been a big had a big effect on people wanting to garden in this city. That's probably one of our greatest accomplishments that we really just accomplished by being here, not really doing anything except talking about gardening all the time with people. You know, answering the questions and giving tours at times. We've done a lot of big tours for free just to. You know, just to let people know what we're doing and, and encourage them to do it because we do feel real strongly that city folks need to know how to grow something uh, for many reasons. But, you know, 
for our security mainly, and to to understand what farmers go through and to, and see that in you know to see how it is when the frost kills everything you put in because you didn't cover it or whatever. And uh, you know the the good thing for us is that we got people praying for us all over this town uh, during the big weather things, hoping we'll be thinking about y'all and wondering how y'all are doing. Oh my God, eight, you know eight inches of rain, or y'all still out? Well, we're flooded, of course, but <laughs> but it's nice to have people thinking about you when you're out there suffering and so forth. And and we think about them. We think about the the one this one guy that likes three bunches of dandelion greens every Saturday morning in season, of course. And uh, so while we're fertilizing them or cultivating them, I'm thinking about old Ralph. He's going to be here and want them on Saturday. And they're looking really good, but he's going to be real happy. So it's really wonderful that because we're urban, we can have a farm stand that, that people who will get out in the traffic will come to. And we don't do a CSA. In 90, when we started our other farm, we, we thought about it because it was just getting kind of popular up in Vermont and places like that. And uh, we, we we understood that, you know, people had to pay you up front because you didn't have any money to buy seeds. And uh, because you, you know, been doing nothing all winter because you snowed in. So we thought, well, that poor things, my God, they don't have enough money to buy seeds. That's terrible. And so uh, then we thought, well, we couldn't take people's money up front because a good hailstorm come in and that'd be the end of it. And then we'd have, you know, 100 people mad at us. So it just seemed so overwhelming. And we were in our, in our first year that we just thought, no way, we'd never do that. And we still feel that way, actually. We'd never do that. I shouldn't say never because, you know, never does come sometimes. But um, we we wouldn't do that now because of the farm stand. It's just seems like it's better for people to come, and, to come here and pick out what they want and how much they want. And if they don't want that, they're not going to gripe at you because you forced it on them. Although I do get a little bit um, um, in their face about, you know, have you ever tried escarole and stuff like that? And, and, you know. <laughs> but you're, you're a chicory pusher? Oh, my God, yes. I've always been a chicory pusher. <laughs> you know, when we started farming, the only green we grew first was basil and and chard. And now we won't even eat chard, hardly. And uh, very seldom do we eat basil. But, but uh, the chicories... Kale, of course, we love kale and all those things, but the chicories, from everything I've studied about them, they are just a superfood. All of them, the radicchio, the escarole, the frisee endive, the, all, all the big curly endives, all that, and the dandelion greens, all of them being in the chicory family, not not the dandelions in your yard, that's the taxicum family, but they're all in the same family, and they're all, in my opinion, very delicious and a nice um, counter to all the sweet and bland and salty and things that you eat. And so it's just one of the flavors. It's one of the tastes. And I think that our body needs every every flavor that's out there, every taste. And that's that way we're balanced. So we grow a lot of that. And I try to foist it on everybody I can. And, <laughs> and we uh, we also do a lot of salad mixes, uh, which um, I'm always trying to figure out if it's worth it or not. But people come for them. And so I guess if it gets them in there, maybe they'll buy the the head of escrow, maybe, <laughs> or they'll buy the sweet potatoes or whatever else we got. And so we put we do salads with the small leaves and chicory plants too, and it's beautiful with the with the full purple of the radicchio and the tender, soft, succulent escarole and the frilliness of the frisee and and all that. And people love it. Chefs love it, and it gets them introduced to those things. Yet it doesn't seem so daunting as buying a whole giant head of escrow and then a big head of verdicchio and another bunch of dandelion greens and so forth. 
so they've got that ready to eat convenience food, and they they will tend to eat it that way. Well, and I suppose getting people into the stand is is pretty important because it's it's not just your produce that you're selling there. You guys also sell products from other farms, right? Well, um, not vegetables necessarily. Um, it is mostly, it's, I'd say it's 95% of our produce. It's it's interesting that we've been in this business for 25 years now with this farm here in Austin and the farm stand we started in 94 uh, because the reason we started the farm stand, one reason was because there weren't any farmer's markets in Austin uh, except one that basically was peddlers, and we just we wouldn't be able to stay in that. And so we uh, we thought, well, we can't, you know, we can keep on doing the liquor store card table, but you know, and the nice thing about that is the city didn't care or didn't know, and so we didn't have to pay any permit fees right now, and we'd have to go hire a lawyer and you know, oh my gosh, have a bathroom built and everything to put up a card table in front of a liquor store to sell produce, and uh, right. so, uh, but. But uh, the, the farmer's market just hadn't happened yet. And so, um, and then the first one that did happen, put on by the Sustainable Food Center, which is a nonprofit here that encourages markets all over, um, they they started one in, in uh, 1994, and we went to it, and we sold, you know, $60 on the grand opening day because they had a band. And then after that, it was $30. And, and we just think, my God, this is all this, all the work we've got back at the farm, and we're sitting here, and this is ridiculous. You know, we're two blocks from a major grocery store, and nobody wanted what we had. They wanted tomatoes and cilantro and chili peppers year-round, and if we didn't have that, they went to the grocery store because they do have it. So there was right. no way we could compete with the grocery store for the local people. And the people across the highway, across I-35, they didn't know existed. So we just came back to the farm and opened a farm stand and made um, $35 our first weekend, and that was $5 more than we made at the farmer's market. We could keep on farming. So we'd be on the field hoeing or something, and we'd see somebody drive up, and we'd just dust off real quick, run up to our little table under the fig tree, and which used to be a real estate sign. Um, when we bought the place, uh, we like to honor things like that. And uh, we'd start selling <laughs> our produce, which all fit on that table. So <laughs> that's how we started here. And simultaneously, we're also selling Whole Foods, which is kind of strange. A table at the liquor store and then uh, a little farm stand in East Austin nobody knows about, and then we're selling the Whole Foods. And this was, of course, this was Whole Foods' tiny moment, too. They were a, a tiny store. And so we pretty well fit, actually. And uh, we'd just carry stuff right into the store, and, and they'd have it on the shelf and talk about us and all that. And it was really good, good very good relationship. And it was downtown, so it's not a drive. I could drive there in five minutes. You know, it wasn't any deal. Now it would take 30 minutes, of course, because of traffic. But back then, everything was a lot simpler and, and all that. And, um, and then then on this farm, um, simultaneously, we were having to restore the old house because it was caved in. The roof was caved in, and the chimneys were in the attic and all that stuff. And this was the original farmhouse of the farm that was started in 1839. This is right at the starting point of the city of Austin. So a lot of history here. Well, and even I would think history with, with just, I mean, even recent history. I mean, talk about um, being in kind of at the beginning of things when, when you got started farming and in 1991, 92, you know, urban farms, organic farms, I mean, that just, I mean, it, it was a thing, but it wasn't a huge thing at that point. It certainly wasn't as trendy as it is now. Well, I, you're right. And, you know, people say, you know, of course, people say we're crazy and everything, but we didn't know better. It just seemed like it was good geographically to do this. 
and we like the idea of people being on the farm. We're very, we're not very much people people. We like people. And uh, our, we've made so many good friends out of our customers over the years and so forth. So we don't mind people coming up on Sunday morning while we're sitting out in our underwear on the back porch reading the newspaper and saying, peeking around the car and saying, oh, do you mind if we look at the farm? You know, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> that has happened. <laughs> of course not. I wasn't in my underwear, but Larry <laughs> kind of was. But that's happened. And, and people come up all the time. They want to see a farm. And, you know, we understand it. And a lot of them are people who might want to farm. And that's good. But, yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey for the last 25 years because back then there were only about three other organic farmers or, or small vegetable growers that we knew of. And none of them lived in Austin or around Austin. They were all an hour away. And it was just, there weren't any farmer's markets, and so they were all trying to sell to the grocery stores and things like that, which is tough. You know, it's wholesale. Um, so um, anyway, we uh, we, we kind of did start a lot of things here, and, and pretty much everything that we done, have done is was new at the time, just because nobody else was around to do it. We had to be the ones to do it. And from what we can figure out, we're probably one of the very first urban farms uh, growing. And I now mean, I don't mean by nonprofit, I don't mean community gardens or anything like that, or people's backyards. I mean, first farm in a city, in an urban setting with grocery stores around us on our farmer land, um, schools and houses were ringed by 26 neighbors. It all used to be farmland. So we may have been the first, I don't know, but I know we're probably in the top number of from the earliest farms in a city. And it wasn't trying, we weren't trying to be trendy or anything. We just, we just were doing, we were working with what we had. We had five acres of bottom land and it was ripe for vegetables. And it was more convenient for us to have people come to us instead of go to them. And so that's why we became an urban farm. And the market uh, is finished in the whole market, the whole awareness of buying local food and everything has grown from no interest at all back in 91 hardly, to, you know, quite a bit of interest now. But we've seen the markets. The market is, you know, always up and down. There's, you know, nothing stays the same and nothing grows forever. But in our first years, we were just constantly, every year, a higher growth, growing more, growing more. I mean, we were getting, we we get, I don't I don't know, we get um, probably, we're, see, on this farm, we were growing on just two acres because there's giant trees and there's the houses and, and processing sheds and, and hen house and stuff like that. And so actually of our five acres, we farm two acres and then have some small archers that we don't really count the acreages because it's kind of hard. And then at the other farm, it's, uh, a lot of it's cover crop at times. And probably he's really actually doing about three acres there in bringing crops in. And so that's roughly about five acres that we're actually cropping. And here we grow year-round. It's not, there's no big season. We're not closed for the season. We're not, you know, we're not opening for the season. We are always open. We are always growing. And so we've grow, we've grossed off of these farms up to almost $500,000 a year. Now, that's not wow. net. That's not net. <laughs> that's growth. And so that's probably $100,000 an acre. Now, the interesting thing about the market, though, is we were always in the growth growth uh, deal, always growing. Every year is better and better. And we hit 2008, 9, and 10, 
And those were our glory years as far as gross, high grossing. And it's just that's when local, eat local caught on. Edible Austin started in 2008, and they wrote about it extensively. And um, um, the newspaper, there's not, there's always articles because we're such a such an interesting thing, like you know, a freak looking monkey to the viewers because everybody wanted to come see this strange thing that was happening over there. And so we did have a lot of newspaper articles and so forth through the years, and that was they were always great to get people to come. Because we got to have people coming to us, and you know, bad weather day it, it slows things down and all of that. Um, and then you know, Christmas season at the mall buying stuff from China when they should be buying food, good food, but they already got the refrigerator stuff, so you know, not a problem. And, well, um, it's hard to put radicchio under the tree. I mean, the color's right, but you know, yeah. once you put it in a box and let it sit under there a couple of days, it's not going to well, be that be- good. That would be a problem, right? But they could eat it, you know, give them strength to go to the mall. <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's just, um, it's always, everybody always has a problem getting, you know, customers, even the farmer's markets. But, and then, of course, in 8, 9, and 10, when it was just so great, there were, there were uh, farmer's markets that already started here, like in the, in the um, well, Whole Foods did farmer's market for us in the uh, late 90s. And, um, and so that was good. And, of course, we catching people they were going into the store and so you know and i was selling salad mix into whole foods at that time and they said well how much is your salad mix uh, out here and i said well it's eight dollars a pound and they said well how much is it in the store and i said well it's 7.99 if i was if i was you i'd go and buy that you know penny saved is penny earned and and i just just delivered it yesterday afternoon so it's still pretty fresh and so you know stuff like that and of course, there, right there at that market, I learned that you don't put $8 a pound on salad mix. You put 50 cents an ounce on salad mix. And that goes down a lot better because they yes. think they got to buy a whole <laughs> pound, $8 worth. And that was back, you know, that's 15 years ago. <laughs> that's a lot of money. So we still do that on salad mixes, although our baby lettuce mix, and I mean, y'all are going to die with these prices, I'm sure. But this is Texas. <laughs> we think big. But, um, um, our salad mix now, our baby spinach leaves, no stem, baby arugula, baby lettuce, and frilly mustard, these little tiny frilly things that are just darling purple ones and green ones. Those are in baskets, and those are all a dollar an ounce because they don't weigh wow. anything. And the labor is hard on so they're a dollar yes. an ounce. But I don't see $16 a pound, <laughs> although that's how no, they're it up the cash rate. I'm sure a lot of them are almost falling over dead when they saw that. <laughs> But, but but and these are you're talking here you're talking these two and three inch leaves right yeah, like the bag well, salads in the oh, grocery yeah. store yeah and spinach is leaf by leaf you know now arugula yeah. you first cut you can get you can just go along you know saw saw blade and a knife straight a knife and just get it, same thing baby lettuce mix and same thing frilly mustard. But then you start encountering, you know, a, a weed or something or whatever, or you're now you're doing a second cutter cutting on something. So you've got to be a little more careful and all that. And and frankly, it takes a lot of time, and, and uh, we wouldn't do it except that at times in the winter we'll have eight different baskets of different salad mixes, and people love it, just love it. If we ran out of something, and we harvest during market, this is something that's really cool about having a farm stand with your farm. With your farm, we're harvesting to get the stand set up, most of it, the day before. But then the day of market, we're harvesting, 
everything as it sells starts getting low. The, my, I have two ladies called the, we call them the Marias. It's mother and daughter. They've been with us for 12, 13 years or so. And uh, so they'll come in and scout around and they'll go out and start harvesting more. And it's real fun because, you know, maybe there was one dinosaur tail left in the tub. We keep everything in water. We don't throw things on the, the table to wilt, by the way. This is Texas. <laughs> we get real dry yes. atmosphere, too. <laughs> so we have to have all our greens standing up, all our bunches standing up in water. And um, that keeps them looking good all through market. And, uh, of course, we're in the shade. We have a building, so we have shade. And so uh, the, this lady will be getting that last dinosaur tail and I'll say, wait, wait, don't get that one. That one that one's an hour old. Just a minute. Here comes Maria. She's got the new harvest. And so Maria comes in, sure enough, and there's all these new ones. And the lady just drops that one like scalded and gets one that's just harvested ten minutes from the field, all washed and everything looking good. So that is a great advantage. We've been to farmers markets and seen our stuff wilted, even though we did take them in tubs of water because we wanted them to last as good as they could. Uh, during, you know, being on asphalt and whatever, whatever the temperature is, and wind and everything. And we really don't want to be at a farmer's market anymore, to tell you the truth. We just, oh. we've done it. You know, it's, it's wonderful and everything, but, um, you know, we like just being at home, I guess, homebodies. When you say we like being at home, are, are you and Larry both working at the farm stand? Then? Oh, is that oh, something? Yeah. Well, well, Larry's kind of a wild card. He's he's kind of everybody say, "Where's Larry?" Because he'll be there, and then all of a sudden he's just vanished, just like a ghost, an apparition, or something. So he's a little more outgoing than I am. I know you can tell I'm real shy um, in this interview, <laughs> <laughs> but I did grow up being very shy. And then I had to teach high school and junior high school, and so I got had to get unshy pretty quickly. And, and that's come in handy to be a farmer at a farm stand because you've got to go up and and ask people how they're doing today, and can they help find anything, and have you ever have you ever tried escrow? <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, he's he's here on market days. But here's the deal: we got two farms. So he can't be there all the time. He can't be here all the time. We're, we're going to be married 40 years this year. And so maybe that's why we're going to be married 40 years this year, because he's on his farm and I'm on my farm. Now, we own both of them communally. This is Texas. It's a, it's a communal deal. So what what's his is mine and vice versa. And uh, I love his farm. It's so totally different from my farm. <laughs> and he loves my farm because it's so totally different from his farm and so forth. So, But he goes up there on Monday morning and leaves at 7, picks up his helpers, drives an hour and a half. They farm, they harvest on Tuesday. They come, he comes back Tuesday night, leaves them there. And um, then all the stuff that he brings, like the little Japanese hakari turnips and, and the Roma tomatoes and, and things like that, he brings that in and it goes on the table here. And uh, then Wednesday afternoon, typically around three o'clock on market day, he goes back to the other farm. And uh, so then he comes back Friday night for a Saturday market. And then he spends Sunday with me, his wife, his beloved. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he didn't forget me those days. (laughs) But we talk on the phone every night, every night. You know, what's going on there? What's going on here? You know, uh, all that. And then Sunday, he'll kind of reconnoiter here and let me know what I'm doing wrong and all that. You know, give me some advice, and that's helpful. (laughs) Or he tries not to. He tries not to. He'll say, well, I... Then he'll just freeze up and stop 
He didn't want to tell me what he would do, but I want to know. I want to know because sometimes, you know, you know, I'm making decisions here, and same thing with him. He's making decisions up there. Do we save this crop? Is it too late? Is it economically unsound? Do we need to mow it down right now and get it, get it going for something else and all that? And that's, so we have to make these independent decisions independently. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of hard at times. But that doesn't happen that much. I mean, we've gotten so, so, uh, brave, I guess, that we didn't, we make decisions and just go with it. And then the other one has to, you know, okay, well, all right, well, I would have done it differently, but that's all right. You know, but we don't say that. We just think it, you know, keep it to ourselves. <laughs> but, uh, that's, yeah, that's a problem. Um, but basically it's, um, We've, you know, we've, this is our whole farming life has been this way. You know, first we had the the, the rural farm for ten years before we went um, commercial on it, and um, so that's just the way it is. Um, that's our life, <laughs> and it's worked. I guess it works. Carolyn, I'm going to stop here and take a moment to get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. I'd like to get into talking about some of the cultivation methods that you're using on the farm. All right. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you buy potting mix from Vermont Compost Company, you're not just buying an input. You're joining a community of growers across the United States. And like the best inputs and the best communities, you're getting a product and a community that really have your back. Vermont Compost Company has been committed to helping farmers make money by growing great transplants for over 20 years. If you've got questions or need help with your transplants, whether you've got questions about watering, temperatures, or just troubleshooting other growing conundrums, you can call them up and you can talk to Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company. And Carl knows his stuff. And about that community, Vermont Compost keeps track of who gets every batch of potting soil they create. And because Vermont Compost deals directly with growers without going through a distributor, they know who's using their potting soils and how they're using them. Vermont Compost Company knows, like I do, that organic growers are some of the best people on the planet. They're proud to be part of that community, taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers and spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. And even though we owned a four-wheeled tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled important jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Carol Ann Sale from Boggy Creek Farm in Austin, Texas. Carol Ann, you said you guys are grossing around $100,000 an acre um, on, well, both on your urban farm and on the farm that's located out in the country. Can you tell me a little bit about about your cultivation methods to do that? I mean, because $100,000 an acre is nothing to sneeze at. No, it's not. And it's pretty amazing to us, but it's very expensive to grow here. So, you know, it's not 
we're not rich at all. And, and those figures were basically in the glory of the glory years, 2008, 9, and 10. And then after 2010, 2011 came, and Larry made $750 that year, and so did I. And we paid all of our expenses, all of our people, but it was a devastating year. It was a horrible four-day, 18-degree freeze that killed everything in February and then had snow at the end to cover up the dead bodies out there. And then March was the hottest March on record with punishing winds that kept up until the end of June. And by then, we were in the drought, the serious drought, the most serious in Texas history and in the United States recorded history. So that year was kind of like wham. But at the same time, all these farmers markets are starting up because it's eat local time now. And so there's farmers markets all over, and they're carving up the same customers that we had. We've lost uh, our chefs full attention, and we have a lot of chefs that come to the farm, but we've lost their full attention because they have to spread it around now to all the other markets. So that $100,000 acre is not happening anymore. It's probably down to, okay. to 50 to 60 or 70. You know, it depends every year. It's different, of course. But we've been climbing back every year from that 2011 massacre. <laughs> so we do cultivate, we do uh, cultivate roughly at any one time five acres. And um, here in Austin, um, the the beds are very close together. There's a footpath in between each bed. I've got a, an acre and a third field behind the house at the back, in the back part of the farm. And there are, we have to have a you know 25-foot buffer zone all around that. And um, um, there's 71 beds on that land. And they're roughly an average of 225 feet long. And okay. this this farm has just kind of grown organically. So nothing's, you know, I hear all these farmers talking about, well, every single bed we have is 100 feet long, da da da, and that makes it easier for everything, easier for road cover and everything. And they're right, but we don't have that. <laughs> and I, I think about it all the time. Do I want to lose? Because some of these beds are 250, and some of them are only 200. Do I want to lose 50 feet across just so that I can have a fun time with the road cover being all the same length? No, not yet. <laughs> I don't. Right. But I'm always trying. We're always trying to get more efficient, and that is an efficiency deal. But I would have. It would cost me money to give up that that um, 50 feet that's on about 10 beds. You know, that's a lot of stuff. I'm, I mean, I'm always fighting Bermuda grass, trying to keep it out of the field. And and every time I do, I think, okay, that's 10 feet. That's another hundred dollars of this crop right there that I saved, liberated. You know, stuff like that. But it's very tight. We plant things closely together. Uh, people down here don't want gigantic broccoli heads. They want they want a head of broccoli that's probably about five or six inches maximum. And so we can plant our broccoli closer. We don't have long daylight hours in the summer like y'all do up there. Um, but uh, we, but we can't grow broccoli in the summer, so that doesn't matter. Broccoli grows in the winter here, fall and winter and early early spring. Right. And another thing is we're growing all year round. So that's a big deal. A lot of people who are doing these mag magic numbers up there, they can't grow anything in the winter. So their their market or their time, the market time and everything, growing time is condensed. Whereas we're growing all year long. There's something almost always on every bed here in Austin. And the, and the, you know, you may ask about cover crops. Okay, this is part of our plan. Like Larry's got 
most of his farm up there right now is cover crop for the winter. And he's just got one section, it's probably an acre, that he's growing supplemental crops like beets and carrots to bring in here, turnips okay. and stuff. And so so not much of his is in production right now, but mine is just full production. Lettuces, spinach, fava beans, snow peas, everything in the world that is cold weather crop. It's all out there. Millions of kales, all kinds of kales and collard greens and all that. And in the summer, out of that 70, I'll have 20 rows of heirloom tomatoes and then cherry tomatoes of various kinds and lots of eggplant and lots of squash and all this stuff. So, it's, okay, yeah, because we, we have two seasons here, basically, hot and cold. That's it. And there'll be a brief moment, maybe a week or two, where we have a beautiful fall. And in the spring, there'll be a, a nice week that's really nice. And sometimes we'll have an overlapping, like in the fall, maybe we'll still have some tomatoes. And then lettuce starts coming in. And people are just, they're just, oh, they're swooning. They're so excited. Now we can have the lettuce and tomato salad, which I think is a very watery salad. I would never put a tomato on a salad, never again. But that's a northern thing, you know, iceberg lettuce with a store-bought tomato. And it's watery and oh, horrible. So anyway, dilute the whatever stuff you're going to put on into olive oil and everything. So, but but that, that doesn't happen very often to have that uh, mixture of, of tomatoes and lettuce, for instance. And broccoli, you know, we, we plant our broccoli real closely because people don't want these giant heads. They want a, a head that they can eat in one meal. And um, so, um, but broccoli can only be grown in the fall and in the winter. And not in the spring and not in the summer. If it's if it uh, if it's still out there in the field, come along April, then we're going to get some 90 degree weather suddenly, and that stuff's going to start firing like crazy. Or the harlequin bugs can come in and tell us, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you're growing broccoli too late. We're fixing to suck it all out." So that tells us get rid of it. So now we try not to grow broccoli that late because we want it. Everybody wants the broccoli. It's fabulous. But it just is going to be a lost crop. So we try to get rid of the crops that nobody wants. In our scheme here, we plant everything real close together, and we try to keep the crops coming all the time, uh, especially things like um, the Philly mustards and the baby arugula. Um, there, we gotta we gotta plant those at least once a month. Both of those start all over again, you know, and because uh, you can cut on them several times until it gets too laborious, and then you better have an, a fresh crop coming. And so, uh, so we're very intense. Um, we uh, we grow pretty much everything outdoors. I, I am I have put up a or I'm in process. Not I I didn't lift a finger on it. But we're putting up a hoop house just to uh, for the winter basically to protect the romaine lettuce and uh, butterheads from horrible winter disfiguration disfiguring uh, elements that they get. For instance, we'll get a bad freeze and the uh, the central vein of the romaine, will, this, all the cells will break and it'll turn brown. So now, now you have a brown stem on a beautiful green romaine and nobody wants it. So I want to put them in under the hoof house. And you say, well, you could use road cover out there. Yes, I could use road cover, but remember this is Texas and this weather is getting pushed down here on us by 40 mile an hour winds. And so the broke I braid the leaves of the lettuce and make it unsellable. So I've been losing my lettuce on these horrible winters. Last few winters have been really just freeze after freeze after freeze and everything row covered all the time, getting beat up by the row cover. It will abrade the bread, the kale and everything it touches, it'll abrade just because it's falling across it constantly with the wind. So right. the hoop house 
is is a use all used material <laughs> situation. Uh, we we've had a lot of um, bent uh, those turn pipes, you know, on other for other reasons, greenhouses and stuff, other farms. So it's all coming here now, and it's being put up. Which means it doesn't look as cool as some of those kits. You know, we have to adjust things, but it's it's very cheap to put it up because it's all used material. We have it all. The only thing new is going to be the plastic. So lettuces will grow in, go in there for the middle of the winter, the horrible time, the January, like what we're fixing to be in right now. And also the arugula, because while arugula is thought to like uh, cold weather, it doesn't like freezes. It gets tough and the stem gets pink, and it's just you know not very agreeable. Actually, arugula down here likes summer better. I grow gorgeous arugula in the summer. Really? Oh, yeah. I grow it year-round. I've been growing it year-round for about 10 years. I had a shade house up here, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have a shade house on those pipes. And that will help me get some things in that, you know, maybe late crops of this or crops of this because it won't be so blasting hot under there. So I planted a planted seed of arugula in this in this shade house, and it's gorgeous, beautiful 30-inch wide, just full, just I'd done the, the, it's like a carpet of arugula, it's beautiful, tiny baby stuff, and then I noticed it started getting holes in it, and, it, and what it was was a, not the, but the shade beetle, shade bug, and so this shade bug was just, just drilling those tiny holes all over it, so if I sold it by the pound, it didn't matter, I guess, because nobody's paying for the air. In the holes, right? <laughs> you know, it didn't look great. You know, we're known around here for being the first people, of course, to grow arugula. We're the first people to grow celery. I mean, this is because we're so old. And so we're the first to do the salad mix, first to do this, first to do this. And uh, so that was that. And I thought, okay, so it didn't like the shade because the shade bug got it. So. By golly, we got to have arugula, and I'm just going to plant it outside in the field. And so that was about 10 years ago, and I have been I have been planting it around for 10 years. And it does best in the heat, best in the summer. And, you know, we can get 110 degrees here. We can have a horrible drought, and it doesn't matter. It loves it. The only thing is it's going to be spicy. It's going to be sparkly. It's going to, yeah. it's going to be like horseradish, and people love it. So, of course, they like chili peppers down here, too. <laughs> but it's not that it's spicy like that. It's just, it's like horseradish. But it's really good, and it smells good, and, and people are still in love with the arugula. And so that's been a big deal that, um, you know, that people will come for our arugula. It's kind of a signature thing because they can get it year-round. And they will also come here for spinach. And um, this East Austin bottomland is perfect for those two crops. Plus tomatoes, and well, plus broccoli, and plus everything else. But it's perfect, especially for spinach. In fact, in the eight, in the nineteen—I uh, always want to say eighteen forties, but no, that's when the place was started. But in the nineteen thirties and forties, this was all truck farming over here before World War II, and uh, people would grow spinach, and it was the spinach capital of Texas, the first spinach commercially grown that got loaded on a train went to New York City, came from East Austin. And it's fabulous finish. It's really robust. It's a rich flavor. It's slightly nutty. And it's really awesome. And, you know, I go in and, and steal a leaf off of a, um, a spinach plant in a grocery store and just to try it out, and it'll just be nothing. Just nothing. Yeah. And it's certified organic from a, a California. Maybe it tasted good there, but it is nothing. It's nandy-pamby compared to our spinach. 
So our spinach is, is real. It's it's one of those crops, and it's it's tedious because we're doing that little salad mix, you know, with no stems much and all that. It's tedious, but men buy the sixteen dollars pound. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say that. But you know, the thing is, it's, it's we lose a lot of stuff here, and your prices have to be. There's value. There's value in the price, and it's it pays for the times. People didn't come to the farm stand when the crop fails, or 2011 happened, or whatever. Too much competition now, whatever. And so, if you don't have your prices, you're going to be out. Of, going to be bankrupt down here if you don't get your prices. I mean, you got to. How do you set your prices, Carol Ann? Well, how I set my prices is a is a real. That's a funny thing. I mean, usually we hold our prices for a lot of years. It's like, you know, if you're a landlord and you got a good renter, you're not going to raise the rent every year because you want to keep that good one. So we kind of try to keep the prices the same for four or five years. And, you know, like people demand cheap food in this country, you know. But um, the thing is, there's a lot of educated people in Austin. There's there's more bachelor degrees here in Austin than almost any city in the country, I think, or something. You know, something like that. Something amazing. I mean, I even have one. <laughs> so not for me, of course. <laughs> But um, so people are educated and they've read and they're worried about their food and they're worried about all the poisons and the environment and, you know, all this stuff, Agent Orange on the crops and everything in the world. They're worried, just worried to death. And then they maybe they came from California. They just moved here. And now they're really freaked out because they can't find any food. So then they wind up here and they and they come in days looking and say, oh, my God, because it's like our farm stand is like having eight farmer's market booths. There's lots of tables around and it's just loaded with stuff, you know, if we're lucky. <laughs> and so uh, uh, they come in and I said, where are you from? In California? And they'll say, yes, yes. And everything was so cheap there and it was so beautiful. I said, well, you know, it's going to be beautiful here. And thank you for finding us and all that. But it's not going to be cheap. This is not California. This is not like any place. Probably the only place I think it'd be worse would be Arizona. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. just for harshness or something. Or Vermont. If you're trying to grow in the winter in Vermont, that would be very difficult. I would hate that. So, um, but so every once in a while, though, we just think, you know, we got to raise this, the price on this. This is just, this has been this, this price too long. We got to pump it up. You know, we'll just raise it 50 cents or something. You know, just not anything horrible. We don't double prices or anything, but just because we know we have competition, and there are people, new people getting into it. They're giving stuff away because they're just they're just timid about it, and and they're you know so and they and they think food should be cheap, and then they they're after it for about five or six years, and then they either get out of it or they learn that they've got to value what they've done, and so this is this is a I'm looking at value. And uh, people say, have told me for our entire history of having farm stand, they'll say, we don't care about your prices. We don't even look at the prices. We just want it. We want this food. This is this has made our life better. This has made us healthier, more energetic. And men, oddly, will tell me that they're thinking better. It's clearer thought processes, which I think is always good for when a man gets clearer thought processes. You know, I yes. want them all to be eating this food. Maybe we won't have more anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, if they just eat the spinach in the winter and the wriggle in the summer, they'd be doing good and we'd be all happy. But that, so we raised the, we raised a few prices this last, uh, but, you know, like our $16 a pound uh, tiny baby things, that's been $16 a pound for about six years. And, you know, I should, I should make it 1650 but that, the calculation is just, you know, we, we can't, 
really, you know, we will, if we raise any price, we usually sell it at the lower price for a while because we just can't get our head around that and we forget. Generally, then it's, we don't really raise, we don't systematically raise our prices. Okay. Everything else has been raised on us. All, everything that we buy in, the roll cover, the drip tape, all that stuff has gotten so expensive. The strawberry plants, when we get them in from California, more than half of it's freight. Freight's gone through the roof. So everything's gone up. And we just try to be for more efficient. But then eventually you just pushed so much that you've got to raise in prices. Um, another thing that's an that's element to our farm stand is that Larry has a commercial kitchen at the other farm. And he's had it for 15 years or so. And it sprung out of the idea that in 1994, one of our first years farming here, we had 12 rows of tomatoes uh, over 200 feet long. And they were just regular tomatoes, early girls or something like that. And they were staked with wooden stakes and, you know, had string around them and all that. And we got we got a big uh, storm, big uh, giant storm come through one night. And there's howling winds and all that. This is in, in uh, late May, early June. and horrible rain and all these stakes there were 12 rows of them and they all snapped and because the plants were big and heavy and wet and full of fruit full of ripe tomatoes and then all those rows just flap 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 oh. on those it was horrible the next morning we came out and saw that and we thought we are ruined this was 1994 when we just had opened our farm stand anticipating tomatoes wanting to sell tomatoes to whole foods everything like that and we were ruined because in Texas, if you don't have tomatoes in the summer, you ain't a farmer. That's just the way it is. And nobody's going to come to your farm stand or they're not going to look at you at the farmer's market. Nobody's going to look at you because tomatoes are it. So we were very depressed. And um, so we kind of bumbled around for a couple of days. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? No way to get them stick, stirred back up. And the next, you know, that next morning, the sun came out all bright and cheerful and blistered every single tomato. Every ripe tomato had a big white spot on it. So we thought, well, we're we're done. We're just totally done. So Larry, who's very inventive and makes a lot of our implements and everything, we had a little woodsy area over here and where he stored junk and things that he could use for something. So he uh, poured a little slab and he said, I'm going to make a smokehouse and let's, let's try to smoke those tomatoes because it's too humid in Texas to to have sun-dried tomatoes. So he said, I'm going to try to do smoke-dried tomatoes. I'm going to just do that. This is 94. So he built uh, trays, wooden trays with slats in them, and we cut that uh, that white part off with the with the uh, stem end, cut it off and had a half a tomato roughly, and put it uh, skin side down on those trays and put it into these racks that he built. And then he had a funnel Everything's used. Everything's just tacky as hell. <laughs> Everything's used. You found this old funnel thing, big, about two, two and a half feet tall, uh, wide at one end, and then narrow. And he built a little fire right in front of it, and then it was all aimed at uh, getting the smoke into this closed-up smokehouse. Right. Smokehouse is about six feet long and about three feet wide. I mean, it wasn't. It was tiny. And we smoke dried those tomatoes. It took about five days because every night it gets humid again, and so in the morning you have to kind of start it over, and you have to keep the fire going all day long, and really all all night long too, except it die out. And so then we took those tomatoes, and they were awesome. They tasted like bacon. They were mahogany red. They were dried, but not too dry, and they were just totally unlike anything we'd ever tasted. And then we. Packed them in jars with 
olive oil, extra virgin olive oil on. And the olive oil absorbed all that flavor. So people had really two products in one. They had the tomatoes they could take out and mince up and put on stuff, put on soups, put on anything you want to do, uh, in with their omelets. It was like bacon, basically. Bacon. It, I mean, you know, who doesn't like bacon, even if they're vegetarian? Oh, <laughs> that makes a vegetarian rattle. You know, I was a vegetarian for 18, 19 years. I never forgot what bacon tastes like. <laughs> and so then once you use all those, then you can use the olive oil to make dressings or whatever. It's great for spinach. It's kind of like bacon on the spinach. You know, it's a nice That's right. pairing. <laughs> and also you could use that olive oil and just keep a few tomatoes sitting around and it soften that up, the flavor up. And then as you use the oil, you put more oil in and let it sit for a few days and you should use that oil for a long time. And the tomatoes last for a long time also. Years. So anyway, we uh, we had them in little jars and, and the man bought one of them and went off and and 20 minutes later, you're back. He said, I got to get another one of those. I said, Really? You already ate them? I said, Yeah, I ate them on the way home. And if I got home, my wife would have killed me. So I had to come by and get her a drawer. So it was hugely um, profitable and, and not profitable. I don't mean profitable. I mean, it was profitable because it's a value added thing. You know, unless you make, you do anything remarkable to something, nobody wanted Roma tomatoes. You know, what do they want them for? Paste, tomatoes? No, but you put a Roma tomato because that's what we switched to after that. The early girl was too watery. We got we grew our own aromas and we and they were meatier, and so we just cut them in half, and then they were perfect for it. It took about three days, unless it was extra humid. Of course, the rule is is when you when you start smoke drying something, it starts pouring down rain here in Texas. So of course, after that first year, Larry moved the moved it up the operation up to the farm, and he grew the Roma tomatoes there, and um, because the uh, the smoke that we were generating here, even with this tiny thing, it's like we were barbecuing every day all day long for, you know, three or four weeks. So we thought we might get in trouble. So he moved it up there and he built a smokehouse 12 feet long by six feet wide and so forth and lots of trays. And now he has two of those. And then um, a food editor here uh, was contacted by Food Network. And she said, and they said, what's going on in Austin? Anything interesting? She said, well, this farm in East Austin is doing these smoked dried tomatoes, and they are awesome. So, so of course, then they contacted us, and they came down and spent two days with us. Um, one day here on the rural, on the urban farm, and then, then we went to Gauls for the smoking operation. And that thing played on uh, Food Network. It's, it was a, there were three different places they were looking at in Austin, so it's one of three deals. But they played that thing over and over again, and we built up a mail order list that was just amazing. And one year, we did 500 pounds of the smoked dried tomatoes. Mostly, we'd go for about 100, 150 pounds, because it's, you smell like smoke all the time. You know, he'd come home and, well, how was the barbecue today? Right. <laughs> <But> it, <laughs> and you have to be watching them all the time. It's very, very, talk about tedium. You have to check them constantly and all that. It was huge. And now, you know, from that, we were making, oh, God, $30,000 a year on those. And then we every once in a while, though, every few years, we'd have a tragedy. Uh, like, we didn't have any smoked dried tomatoes this year because we had all the spring floods. And it just ruined, it washed out tomatoes, ruined everything, ruined more than half of our potato crop and all this huge rains in uh, around May. And so that ruined the tomatoes, uh, the aromas. So, and then some one year, he just got tired of doing it, so he didn't do it. And then everybody just berated him so much the next year that he had to start doing it again. And then after a <laughs> while, you know, when you had a couple of failures in a row, then 
I just didn't want the blowback from all these bad email addresses, and I was just tired of that. So we just quit it. Now we just sell them locally unless somebody goes to our website and they remember and they order them or somebody sees it and orders it or whatever. You know, we do still do a little mail order, but it's not anything like we used to do. It was, it was huge. And so that's um, that's one thing. We, he, so he has this commercial kitchen, and so he does now. He does all kinds of things. It's all with our vegetables, all with our fruits. So we don't really waste. We have no leftovers. We don't waste much. Uh, he's doing. He does fermentation stuff. He's been doing that for a couple of years. Kimchi. I saw you guys had cowboy kimchi. Yes. Well, that came from a customer who said, I've never seen a, I've never seen a cowboy make Korean kimchi before. And Larry said, well, that's what we'll call it, cowboy kimchi. Because Larry is, he's a Texan. He grew up on a farm. He rode a horse to school in elementary school. And he's had a, a hat, a cowboy hat on his head all his life. So except when he was in Vietnam, they didn't much go for it. So he had to wear one of those silly little caps. But um, so anyway, uh, that's does kimchi, does pickles of all kinds. They're fermented, um, fermented green beans, fermented green Juliet tomatoes, which are really great. Um, you know, your last crop of green tomatoes, just ferment them, and they're wonderful. And uh, and he does uh, bean dip with smoked dried tomatoes in them, which is wonderful. <laughs> uh, bean dip's pretty ordinary, but not with smoked dried, dried tomatoes in it. He's done all kinds of sauces with smoked dried tomatoes in them. And then he fire roast tomatoes with a pear burner. You know what a pear burner is? Right. It's Well, it's it's one of those things you, we use up here for flame weed and carrots, right? Well, yeah, they, you would up there. Yeah, you would in Vermont, you'd flame weed your carrots. Here, down here is for burning the, the spines off the cactus leaves so that the cows can eat them in a drought. It's called a pear burner because the fruit of the cactus is called a, a pear. It, I don't know why it's not done like anything like a pear, and it certainly is full of spines. But that's what a pear burner is, and so that's um, what he does to blacken tomatoes. He has sets up a grill and and takes regular tomato tomatoes heirlooms, and if they're disfigured in some way, heirlooms or whatever, and just burns them black all around, turns them over and burns them black, and then they they let them cool, and then he rub all that stuff off and leave a few black specks, and then he processes them in a steam kettle, cooks them a little bit, a little bit of salt, and then he packages them, um, heat you know, heat sealed and all that, you know, commercial kitchen, you know, and uh, sells sells, uh, tomatoes that are incredible, and they have that smoky flavor in them. And they make great sauces, soups, and whatever you dollop up to of that into a saute changes it, you know, and all that. And so he does all kinds of things in this commercial kitchen, jams from our strawberries, from our figs, and things like that. And, uh, and Bloody Mary makes it everything in the world, just as he wants to do them. You know, it's not something where selling into a grocery store and you have to keep it stocked. It's just if he's in the mood to make it and we have strawberries and figs now, he's going to make strawberry fig jams. And that's up. So there's a value added thing coming into the market that even in our low times, we have that stuff. He's soups. He does seasonal soups, which are real popular because it's a convenience food. You can expand right. them with more water or broth. You can put more greens in them. You can do whatever you want to, but you have your basic soup right there. And, and it's all the stuff that we grow in that soup field, and it changes all through the year. So all that stuff, and we can do all that because we don't have to transport it anywhere. It just comes here and gets in the farm stand. And then sits on the shelves in the farm stand. So it's easier for us to do it because we have a farm stand. So all the stuff, you know, the chickens get some tomatoes to eat at the end, but really it's not the ones that have any value. I used to freeze tomatoes also for value added because then people could put them in soups and sauces all winter long. 
And, and the neat thing about that was they would let them thaw out and the skin would just pull right off with two fingers. And then they had this luscious Oaxacan jewel heirloom tomato, yellow. Oh, my God, beautiful. And uh, so that was real popular. But now we just put it all in fire roasting. And so we'll have fire roasted Oaxacan jewel tomato, heirloom tomato. Or we'll have celebrity tomato or whatever, aromas. There's aromas, too, for a real thick sauce. And so all that coming out of the, that, out of that uh, kitchen is very important to us. That's part of the deal. We grew the stuff, so it's still coming out of the acres that we're growing on. And so that's part of the, the deal. So in other words, we are very diversified. We work all the time, pretty much. Uh, in fact, this season, this year, we're so excited because we actually have had three days off around Christmas and three days off for this coming weekend, this New Year's. And we're just ecstatic about it. Um, and of course, uh, we're going to go up to the other farm because I don't get to go up right. there. <laughs> so it's a farmer's holiday. Just go to another farm. <laughs> but uh, and we have taken you know five day vacation about in twenty five years probably about three times. But basically, you know when you're you know we don't go to parties or anything because we have a party um, four days a week at our farm stand and because now we're we are open. And this is a big change for us. We're open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Because it was killing us weather-wise to only be open two days and, and one of those be a terrible weather day. So right. and people were saying, well, I can't come on Wednesday anymore. Is there any other day you can be open? Finally, we just said, okay. Uh, we try to listen to our customers. They wanted to come at 8, and enough of them wanted to, and they started slipping in guiltily before 9. And so we said, okay, we're going to be open at 8. 8 to 1, that's it. And some people get their five tail and want to try to get our eggs. And I said, nope, you can't have any eggs until eight now. Now, you know, <laughs> this is it. Because my egg, our eggs, our chicken's eggs are in hot demand. Partly because they can only have six and they're five <laughs> pounds. They're $5 a pound, which turns out to oh, be about, really? yeah, it turns out to be four, about $4 a six pack, but that's all they can have. Now they can go over and get the Coyote Creek eggs, which are 90% as good as ours. They don't get the kale delivered, hand-delivered by me in the winter, so they can't be as good as ours. Uh, but um, they can go over there and get the dozen for $6. But ours are, would be $8 a pound, um, $8 a dozen, but we won't let them have that much because we have to spread it out because there's so much demand. So remember, the chickens live their entire life on the farm, so you know they are just... Uh, you know, they're just eating, <laughs> but right. not just eating. They are pooping. And to me, this is the reason to have chickens on a small farm like this. They are making, because they eat the awesome feed and eat all our produce, they are making the most awesome poop there ever was. And so this is what I clean out mixed with straw from underneath the perches and make compost with. And the, and the nice thing about uh, living in the town is that the little there's people who don't want leaves in their yard. So at first when we started doing compost back in ninety two, ninety three, and here here at Austin, we'd go around with a sixteen foot trailer and fill it full of bags of leaves and go back and get another bar in the trash bin and say, Okay, great. Y'all go that way, we'll go this way. And that saved the trash people time and all that, and we got all these leaves, and we made compost with it. Well, then they quit having the plastic bags, and so now we rely on the yardmen who suck it all up with their 
whatever they do, how they get it all raked up, and bring it here and dump it out here with a few trashes, of course. We pick up a lot of trashes and sticks, even though we won't just leave. So we have branches to have to haul out and all that, but you don't get anything for free, right? So we take that those leaves they bring us, and primarily early fall, and right now it's, it's all pecan leaves, and then in um, about about February, we'll start getting oak tree leaves, which we really like because they're more acid, except they're so slick that the water will go right off them, so they're a little more difficult to compost. But we take that in our chicken's manure with a little 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 spelt feed thrown in, which is we you know we don't lose any feed even though they kick it out of the pans because that winds up in the compost and it's another right. nitrogen source. So and everything else that's good about it. So we make our own. I make I'm the compost maker, oddly. I drive Jaws or Lillian. Those are the two tractors. Uh, Lillian is a smaller tractor. They're both Kubotas, and Jaws, I know the men are all interested in this tractor stuff. Larry has four tractors, by the way. Four. <laughs> four, four, four. He has a big John Deere, and then he has everything down to a little kinky, tiny Matthew Ferguson, which is good for getting in between his beds. But I have two. I have Lillian, and then her boyfriend, Jaws. And we call him Jaws because he used to have these giant teeth that came over he was used, we bought him used, and somebody had used those for doing something awful, mutilation of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, they would fold over the bucket and hold what, whatever's in the bucket, and they were really useful, except that we'd be putting compost out of the bucket, and the, and the teeth would be raised, and if we had a hat on, we'd knock our head into one of the teeth. Oh. And so, you know, I was afraid all my, my helpers were going to get drilled, and, you know, it'd be a problem. So, we finally he had he sprang some hydraulic leaks and so finally we had to trade in his teeth to get the the hydraulics replaced replaced and so now we should still have them because they were really useful but anyway we make the I make the compost and I have a, an assistant Andrea who stands there with the water hose and waters it down while I'm fluffing it up mixing it with all the stuff and that's what we put out you talked about. Uh, cultivation and how we grow things. All our yeah. beds are, are raised beds and they're all permanent beds and have been for two decades. We started out with a four foot wide tiller. That was the only implement we had. And it's only the only reason we had it, it was a coon, K U H N, a really nice tiller, twelve hundred dollars back in ninety three or four or something like that. And the only reason we had it is because Larry's grandmother gave it to us, bought it for us. Because we were we bought we got into farming with no money because we didn't have any money. <laughs> and right. um, this is a digression, but we bought this farm on Larry's real estate commission because he'd been a broker. And and the people had to find – it was a knee breaker outfit that owned it. It had been through the Depression in Texas. The people had lost it. They didn't like it anyway. They lost it. And uh, so we got it from the knee breaker people, and they had to finance it because banks won't finance on a lot of land and a broken-down house. So they had to phone owner finance it, and used to, we used his commission as down payment because we had no cash. We had been through the Depression, too, and didn't make any money. So then there was two acres cut off of it that had been marketed for $95,000, and went, they went bankrupt, so that loan was bad. And so we got that for $5,000, and I wanted the, the realtor people, the company, to, to finance it, but they said absolutely not. They would not do it. It had to be 5000 cash. And I said, okay. Um, um, well, I'll we'll get our credit card and we'll bring you the cash. So we put it on our credit card, which didn't have anything on it. Since we didn't have any money, we weren't charging stuff either because you don't do that, right? And so and we were already farmers at the farm, so we were already farmers. You don't you don't run up your credit cards, you can't pay it. 
So we paid it to go. So we got it. We got that that two acres for five thousand dollars, and we got this three acres of the old house for for thirty five thousand. So we got forty thousand in this. We had a house that we lived in across the tracks, and so after we were sure that we were going to stick with this farm, we sold that and we paid this off. So we got out of debt. We were in our mid forties when we started farming, so we got out of debt. We owed a little bit on the other farm, but it was easy, and we paid it off. So all the farms were debt-free before we became 50 years old. And so that is that has been so liberating to not have any debt. We get a truck, and Larry has to get one every three years because he's driving all the time. We get a truck, then we do finance it with as big a down payment as we can save up, put on it, and then we start throwing money at it at any time, just paying it off, get rid of it as fast as possible. And, um, and then we do run up a credit card, various things. Larry's always doing something. He's always building something, always new things, whatever. So um, we pay that off monthly. And so we have no debt at all. And that makes it easier <laughs> to not make any money. <laughs> well, I was going to I was going to ask how you guys survived in 2011 and 2012, those awful years. And, and even this year with the bad rains, but certainly that low debt load, that low requirement to perform yes. Yes. must no make a difference. No mortgage. And our kids, our daughter moved in back in with us, you know, back in 1992, and she helped us start the farm. But then she got married and she went off. So the, all the kids were out of the house pretty much. So we didn't have to worry about it. And they were all educated because we started later. All these 23-year-olds want to have babies, and they, I don't know how to do it because it's, you know, it takes a lot to raise a kid and put them through college and all that. We did all that, and you know, just pretty much with help from the, the spouses or whatever. <laughs> but we helped. Right. We, we got that done. And so basically it was just to, just to stay, you know, just to keep from being hauled away in, in bankruptcy or something. Was, uh, you know. But 2011 was possible to pay everybody because 2008, 9, and 10, when we made money, we saved it. We saved it. That was the deal. And then 2011 came along. We paid everybody, and we actually built a house, one that I'm sitting in right now. It's a Texas dog trot. It's on a lot that we bought from my the widow of my brother, and they were going to build here, but then he died. And so we bought this lot, and it's, it's adjacent to the farm. I'm looking right out on the farm. And we we didn't know what we were going to do with it, and Larry said, why don't we build another old house? So we built this 1845-style dog trot with a little apartment on each side and a big breezeway going through the middle and a big giant back porch, and we, sh- we shoved it toward the farm, so there's no doubt it belongs to the farm, except it's on its own property. And so we paid for that in cash, and it cost $200,000 to build it. Wow. Really, it cost more than that, but Larry poured all the cement tears himself and stuff like that, and we all helped. We all helped. It's like the Amish. When it's time for the our carpenters that we hired to put up a framing wall, we all came out of the field and held it up when it got situated and stuff like that. It's just, you know, but we've decided that we didn't want to you know, squander it, squander any money we made. We didn't want to have it all in stocks or whatever or anything like that. Remember, we started this far. We had no cash, no money, and not making any money because – it was it was hard in Austin during the Texas downturn, very hard, and um, and Larry actually did a remodeling for the first six months that we were on this farm, and then it started paying for itself 
and since we had no no not much debt because we were renting out our house that covered the mortgage here and so it was not too much of a strain and in fact one day Larry said uh, I said Larry I figured out how much we're making this is in 1993 how much we're making and he said well, how much I said well we're making three put three dollars and 23 cents an hour and at that time uh, I think the going bottom wage was 515 or something and he said right. oh my god his shoulders are slumped you know we're working our tail off you know $3.23 an hour. And I, he said, how are we making it? And I said, well, we're working 70 hours a week. That adds up. 70 times 3.25, you know, whatever it is. That's, that's enough. And everything we made, we put into the place. We had to have infrastructure. We had nothing. We had no barns. We had no processing shed. I was washing salad mix out in, out in the yard in an old antique to deal where you did laundry in and stuff like that. And it was just primitive, very primitive. But we didn't want to. We didn't want to finance anything because we were so worried about losing everything if we financed. So we just did what we did. And we ate off the farm. We ate eggplant that first year. I tell you what, it ruined Larry's eggplant <laughs> for ten or twelve years. <laughs> I happened to like it, of course, and it grew really well in this hot Texas sun. So that's what we ate: eggplant and chard. We ate a lot of chard during the winter and thought it was just the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> and now we just little. No, uh, well, whatever, short. But uh, so, uh, let's see. Um, uh, but anyway, so we we put that money into the house here because we wanted to be diversified again. We want we didn't want to have to sell our farm to survive. We if we had to sell something, we would sell this. Or we right. always figured out. Well, we sold it. If we had to do it, we sell the country farm first. You know, whatever. You know, um, but we don't want to sell anything. You know, <laughs> but you never know what will happen. But at least we could rent this place to people who would pay the rent, and that would help us. If and if we got if we lost our tax advantage on the farm here, and had to pay twenty thousand dollars here, well, we'd have to rent this out, but that would cover it. Running this right. out would cover that. So it's just kind of balancing out so that you don't lose everything, that you get through the tough times because it always changes. People stop farming just because they've had a, a bad year. But they, you know, they need to step back, yes, and think about what they could have done differently and what they will do next year, and they must do next year because that's going to be the fabulous year. So that's the deal. It always changes. It's like the Texas weather. It's going to change. So... You know, you just adapt. You go with it. You put the row cover on. You take the row cover off, you know, endlessly, all that kind of stuff. But so we have made money on the farm. And uh, but this right now, you know, it's it's tougher because we're coming back from that 2011 catastrophe year. So when you're when you're looking ahead now, Carol Ann, um, I mean, you mentioned you guys started farming at 40. I mean, you do the math on that. You're I mean, you guys aren't. uh you aren't exactly young anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I don't know how to say. I want to say that right. You're you not a spring you're chicken. Old. You can say you're old <laughs> because it's true. Actually, he was 44 and I was 47. But we're we're strong people. We're you know we're, we're I hate to say this, but we're multi generation Texans. Our our grandparents farmed. Our, they were before them were they were pioneers. We're of hardy stock. And so we were in good condition, and we're and I'm 71 and a half, and Larry's um, about three years younger than I am. He just turned 68, I think. 
you know, 68. And so um, we can still walk and get around. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of pulling back a little bit from some of the arduous things, but yet I find that somebody's sick. I've got to get out there and do it. So I might as well, I, I work out in the own farm in the morning, every morning, because I never know when I'll have to be pulled in to harvest 65 heads of kale for the restaurant. Right. So stuff like that. So I, I have to stay fit. And I want to stay fit. And Larry, Larry built me a standing um, desk. He built a lot of stuff out of the wood from the other farm. Beautiful furniture. And so, you know, we try not to be sitting down all the time and all that. And we eat right. You know, we're gluten-free, but very pre-celiac. So we have to be gluten-free. And um, we eat, basically, we eat what we grow. And we're very moderate drinkers. And we don't smoke, never have. And so, you know, we're in good condition for people I've seen, you know, astonished when I tell them how old I am because you know, it's hard to figure out how old people are anymore. If you're over 30, I don't know how old you are. The thing is, there is a future to con- contemplate. We've thought about this off and on for years because, you know, you never know. Uh, if one of us dies, then that's going to change the whole ball game. But because of finances, the farms will have to stay in business <laughs> because you right. can pay $20,000 a year on taxes if you're not making any money and just Social Security, you know, and stuff like that. So um, we're, we're, of course, looking at young people and we hire young people to be farm associates. And we have uh, um, two, two young women right now. They're really wonderful. And uh, I'm sure someday they'll want to go to a farm and we'll be sad, but we'll tell them they have to replace themselves first so they're not allowed to leave. You know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then we have three Mexican ladies here that are Mexican nationals and uh, Andrea, who helps me water the compost and who's kind of an all-purpose person. She's like me. We clean out a bed, we plant, we do everything, we harvest everything. And the Marias are primarily harvesters with little light cultivation. And they harvest all the greens typically and uh, all the salad mixes and that kind of thing. And um, so we have those are on this farm. And then Larry has a couple of guys up at the other farm. And then he has some, a couple of neighbors that can pitch in for really big stuff. And, um, and then his son is now there with him. So it's, that's a young person relatively, and he's in his 40s, as young does. And he'll probably inherit that farm up there. And probably my two kids will inherit this one here. And uh, okay. my kids are not interested at all in farming, though. <laughs> but they're interested in protecting the farm. And that's the important thing. Protecting the farm, protecting the farmhouse and the history and all of that. Hopefully there'll be some way that, you know, we might put a conservation easement on this land and stuff, keep it from being turned into uh, condos and whatever. Something like that. Um, and But we don't know. I mean, you know, I'm sure something will force us to know pretty quickly, but we're just kind of exploring different routes to go. And our dream would be if these two young ladies right now, they've been here over a year, which is kind of long for Anglos. <laughs> Mexican folks, they stay forever. The Anglos, they've got options, so they move on after they've after they've milked what they could, could out of one farm, learning how to do that, then they want to go to another one. And I totally understand, and I totally wish them well, and think it's a good idea. Because they're, but they're not. But I want some that that see everything is in place here. It's all here. And for them to go out first, find water somewhere out east. Don't go to the hill country. There's no water. It's all rock. Everybody wants to go to the hill country. You can't raise a goat there. Go east. That's that's the old farmland. But where's the water? And these big cities sucking it all out, you know, it's going to be tough. And then then you can make soil, but you can't make water. So that's the deal. So um, 
but if they just came here and just took over here in you know in a few years with us just as mentors and you know correction officers or something <laughs> uh, and and doing all the inside work, then they could be farmers who don't have to do the business side the you know they would be something you know i mean it could be anything um I don't know where it'll be. We'll, we'll find out when we're really old. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Carol Ann, let's turn to our lightning round here uh, okay. and get a get a few quick questions here in at the end. So, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, I have two favorite tools. I knew you were going to ask this. One one of them is the half moon hose or the, the swan neck hose. Oh, I like that because it kind of slips under the row cover, not the row cover, the uh, um, drip tape real easily, and it's got a sharp point on either end. So if there's something, some weed I don't really like at all, I can turn it on its edge. So I like the swan neck, or it's also called a half moon hole, and I like a flat shovel. And the flat shovel is great for scraping up the under the hen house uh, roof uh, roofs where they're dropping all their good stuff all night long. Uh, it's good for getting all that shoveled up and into the tractor, into the bucket, and stuff like that. So and it's good for edging things. And it's just I like I like those flat shovels. It's strong. So those are, those are the two. All right. And what's your favorite crop to grow? <laughs> Besides escarole. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, maybe it's just escarole. That's a, that's an okay I, I, answer. That's you good know, stuff. It's more like, well, it's more like season. Of course, I love doing the heirloom tomatoes because everybody loves them so much. But basically, I like the cool season the best. I like all the vegetables. There's a lot of variety in the vegetables in the cool season. And the summertime is, is cucumber squash, green beans, and, and uh, tomatoes. Basically, uh, okra. I can't forget okra. That is not my favorite crop, but I've picked a lot of it, and it's very itchy. <laughs> uh, I also like figs. I love growing fig trees. They're very itchy, too, just so you know. They're almost as itchy as okra. But I guess it would have to be just the cool weather crops. I just love the greens and all that, and the chicories and the beets and the carrots and the snow peas and the fava beans and, the, oh, God, sugar snap peas and, oh, Wow. Parsnips were not too favorable, not not too good for us anymore, but we grow great parsnips. But um, they, you know, if you harvest them with wet leaves, they, they put a big stain blister on your arms. You have bare arms. And, and I know nobody would be bare arms harvesting in the winter up north, but they are. We are here. And so um, we don't do parsnips anymore because of that. But so, so just the cool, I like the all variety. Leeks, I love leeks. We're planting leeks right now, and we're a little late on them, but we're having to do them in, get them in, you know, bit by bit. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer selves one thing, what would it be? Oh, wow. I would say, oh, well, we, we weren't out of debt yet, but that's what I would tell any farmer, get out of debt first. <laughs> that makes it better. And I would certainly tell us to do it. It's been a miraculous adventure. Really, truly, you're never bored. I would say, I would tell myself, yes, do it again. <laughs> it's great. Carol Ann, thank you so much for, for taking time this morning to talk to us here at the Farmer to Farmer podcast. My pleasure. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 48 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for sale. That's S-A-Y-L-E. 
I'm super excited to be heading to Kansas City on January 25th and 26th for a two-day short course on making your market farm work for you. I'm really big on this idea of management, the organization and coordination of resources and activities to achieve a defined outcome. But how do you do it? You plan, you monitor, and you control, and if necessary, you make a new plan. And I want you to plan to get to this workshop where we're going to cover a cornucopia of ways that you can improve the outcomes from all over your farm, from maintaining your values in the face of business pressure to responding effectively to unexpected changes in weather, staffing, and the marketplace. We'll dig into finances and employees, as well as the cool stuff like weed control, refrigeration, and irrigation. Like how I did that refrigeration, cool stuff. We'll probably even talk a little bit about love and beets. More details and registration at cultivatekc.org. Also, we wrapped up the employment workshops that I've been talking about last fall, but I've got a whole another one on schedule in Grays Lake, Illinois on February 17th, 2016. I guess I can stop saying 2016 now because that's where we're at. Employees make it possible to get more done, but managing workers and their work takes dedicated time, energy, and processes. And I'm going to share what I've learned in 25 years of farming and working with farmers about how to make that work for you. More information, including schedules and registration information at purplepitchfork.com slash betterboss. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd encourage you to check out my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop over to iTunes and leave us a review, make a comment on the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And you know what else? I'd love to hear your suggestions for guests on the show. This show today came out of a suggestion that I got from a listener. So we really do follow through on those. In fact, I'd say probably about half of what I've done so far actually comes from people writing in and saying, you know what? I want to hear from. Okay. So go to farmer to farmer podcast.com. Use the contact form to tell me who you'd like to hear. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.